0: From Indiana to California, Missouri to Washington, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, in the wake of the Trump indictment, what are the political goals of Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg? The Hill contributor Keith Naughton joins us with analysis. There is a new entry into the U.S. Senate race in Virginia, and he is a familiar voice to listeners of American Radio Journal. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. African-American farmers in Tennessee are being forced off their land by eminent domain to make way for an automobile factory. Eric Boehm and Joe Lancaster of Reason Magazine have details. And elected state officials are attempting to cancel free speech at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College has an American Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's high-profile prosecution of former President Donald Trump has raised the DA's profile. Is he trying to further his own political career? For answers, we turn to Keith Naughton. Keith is principal at Silent Majority Strategies and is a frequent contributor to The Hill. Keith, welcome back to American Radio Journal. Keith, looking at the recent indictment and arraignment of former President Trump, of course, all the attention, obviously, on President Trump. Let's focus at the outset here, though, on the district attorney, Alvin Bragg. What is his goal here? I mean, obviously... He wants to get a conviction of a former president. But are there political implications for the district attorney?
1: Well, I think this is really a story of an ambitious politician who sees a very crowded uh, stage of other politicians in New York City, and he's jumping the line. This is perfect for him to to set himself up to run for the, the Senate or to maybe even primary Mayor Adams in 2025. I mean, it hasn't been since 1942 that a New York County district attorney has jumped from that job to a higher office. And that was uh, Thomas Dewey back in 42. So it hasn't been a great springboard in the past, but this case is perfect for it. I think that Bragg's been working on this for a while. I think he saw that the Georgia a grand jury might indict the former president. And he wants to be first. Because if you're first, you get all the publicity, you're going to get the fundraising, you're going to be the big hero. So I really think it's very transparent that it's a political ploy primarily for District Attorney Bragg.
0: Is there a potential downside for the district attorney here, Keith, if he indicts the president and the president is acquitted on all the charges? Would that actually impede? District Attorney Bragg's political ambitions, or with the Democrats, would he just get props for trying? Well, I think
1: that that would would be a problem, but this case might not even come to trial before the 2024 election. So the real key for him is if this drags along and if it hurts Donald Trump enough that he Bragg and plausibly claimed that he prevented him from being reelected or returned to office, then it doesn't matter whether he wins or loses if the case is decided in 2025. And knowing how President Trump and his team have done things, they're going to challenge everything, which is their right. And that delays things. And you get into a trial, what happens if its trial starts in July of 2024? Would the judge say, well, look, we're not going to have a trial during a campaign. We're going to suspended until after election day, that sort of thing. I've seen some commentators think that it might not even get in front of the court until January 2025. So in a way, Bragg's got a little bit of a free pass due to the uh, inefficiency of the New York court system.
0: Where does this then leave the American electorate? Uh, This is, I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, unprecedented that you would have uh, a major candidate for president, a viable candidate for president, let alone a former president running again, under indictment during not only the primary season, but possibly through the general election. This leaves a lot of questions out there. What does it do to Trump as a candidate during that period of time?
1: Well, I think it helps him on the Republican side, because, you know, know, Trump has been, I mean, no one's a better victim than Trump. And Trump has been running on a campaign of vote for me because you should pity my circumstance, which is odd for a guy who lives at Mar-a-Lago in Florida. But that has had an appeal, I think, to people, the sort of victim psychology. So I think it's helped them there, but I don't think it helps them with the electorate at large or a general election. I think it's its just more chaos and I think people want to get away from the chaos, that sort of median voter, that middle voter. And it's just too much sort of swirling about him. The other issue with Donald Trump is it always seems to be one step forward, two steps back. He says things and he does things that just add to the chaos, that just add to the frustration I mean, he goes on these rants about the D.A. If he had a much more disciplined message, if it was much more about the facts, I think he'd swing far more people on his side. But he just rages, and that just doesn't work. It just undermines his whole position.
0: There has been one school of thought that the Democrats really want Donald Trump to be the nominee that you put him up against Joe Biden, who has his own negatives and their own concerns within his party, that they want Trump as a foil for Joe Biden. Uh, Any thoughts on that? I
1: think all of the Democrats would prefer Trump to, say, Ron DeSantis or, or a Tim Scott or a Nikki Haley. The polling for the last year has shown DeSantis has run better than Trump pretty much across the board against Biden. Now, that the Democratic camp is then split between people who don't want to take the risk that Trump could actually win and those who think that he certainly can't or are willing to take the risk. I think there's no question that the Democrats are, elements of the Democratic Party, I should say, are encouraged by Trump's surge on the Republican side. Remember... They complained about election denialism in January 6th and so forth, but they had no compunction about supporting Republican candidates who shared in those conspiracy theories and shared in, in all of that rage. So they've got a long history of interfering in Republican primaries for people they claim to hate. It's extremely hypocritical, to say the least.
0: Joe Biden versus Donald Trump in November of 2024. A long way away, may or may not happen, but just conjecturing, how do you see that shaping up?
1: I think right now the polling shows that that it's very close. Uh, Some polls have shown Trump uh, slightly ahead. I think more have shown Biden slightly ahead. And the problem that comes is we have to project forward. When you get to that date, and I think we saw this in 2020, you have that middle voter saying, listen, I just can't deal with the, the chaos of Trump. And so I, as much as I don't think much of Biden, I'm just going to go for the sort of least chaotic person. I think the problem with these indictments, problem with the president, former president's rhetoric is that it just keeps lowering the bar for Biden. It allows him to be more incompetent and still win.
0: We have been talking with Keith Naughton, who is principal at Silent Majority Strategies, also a contributor at The Hill. And Keith, if we have listeners who would like to read your various writings, where can they go on the web to see them?
1: You can go to thehill.com. I'm usually in about once every week or every two weeks. And I also contribute to The American Spectator, which is a terrific conservative publication.
0: Absolutely. Keith Naughton, thank you for being back with us. Thank you. As we start our weekly interview with Scott Parkinson, I want to take a bit of a trip down memory lane. Back in 2008, we started American Radio Journal, and we did so with the assistance of Pat Toomey, who at the time was president of the Club for Growth. And Pat helped us launch American Radio Journal and for a number of years did this segment regularly on our program. Ultimately, he ran for and was elected to the United States Senate from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, at which point Andy Roth took over for a number of years. And now for many years, Scott Parkinson has joined us, and he does so again today. Scott, good to have you here.
2: Thanks for having me back, Loman.
0: Well, I mentioned the history of Pat Toomey being on our program, doing this segment, and then running for and getting elected to the U.S. Senate. In the past week, it looks like you're trying to follow in his footsteps.
2: That's right. On April 3rd, I enthusiastically announced my campaign for the United States Senate seat in Virginia against the current incumbent, Tim Kaine, who has actually been in office for nearly 30 years. He's been on the ballot nine times, and he votes with Bernie Sanders now 94% of the time. Senator Kaine is looking to run for his third term for the United States Senate, but he's been holding elected office since 1994. And I think that there's a lot of people in the Commonwealth of Virginia that are ready for new conservative voices to step up and try to make a difference in our community. I've obviously been thinking about this for a couple of months. You and I have privately talked about it a little bit, given our friendship. But as a father, husband, and neighbor, really a lot of the things that that pushed me toward the race three years ago when coronavirus launched on our country We needed new leaders to stand up and fight for our freedoms, and unfortunately, Tim Kaine fought aside radical leftists to take our freedoms away and destroy the middle class. Tim Kaine, he's a guy now that is prioritizing woke ideologies over parents' rights, and he's enabling open border policies. He's enabling violent crime while turning his back on law enforcement. And I think a lot of this leftward lunge, from Kane started when he joined Hillary Clinton on the ticket as a vice presidential nominee in 2016. We know that the national political scene for Democrats means you have to adhere to these woke ideologies and progressivism that the far left holds dear. And so for Tim Kaine to hold on to his power, he's taken that leftward lunge. He's gone from a blue dog to a partisan radical, and we're feeling it now from the kitchen table, the gas station. And those canceled family vacations. I mentioned that he votes with Bernie Sanders 94% of the time. Well, Virginia can't afford 94% of socialism, and our middle class is wrecked right now. So, how does this impact a federal government? Uh, how does it impact the future of our economy and and the prosperity for the next generation? Well, we've got a close majority right now for the Democrats. They hold a 51-49 majority with two independent Democrats that that caucus with the Dems, right? But we we had a 50-50 Senate last cycle. We actually lost seats in 2022. But 2024, big presidential election, and I'm excited about the opportunity in front of me
0: Taking a look at your announcement video, Scott, you were sitting at your kitchen table, and talk a little bit more about how the policies of the current administration, including the Democrats in Congress and the U.S. Senate and House, how these policies have really impacted our families on a day-to-day basis every time we, as you mentioned, go to the grocery store or stop at the gas station.
2: I think that this election is a kitchen table conversation And most nights I try to make it home and and hang out with my kids and my wife at the dinner table. And they often ask me, how was work today? What happened in Washington? And you and I are used to hearing from me give the Washington update. And I also talk a lot about these issues with with my family. But we also feel on the kitchen table the impact of 41-year high inflation This is a thing that I wanted to get across in the conversation that we had with the announcement video to try to resonate with the people of Virginia and let them know that I have the same concerns that they do. That's what I mean when I talk about a movement to save the middle class, because right now we're feeling it in a big way. I don't think people really realize that from the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic up until today, inflation has actually gone up a total of 16 percent. We talk about the year-over-year inflation rate right now being at 6 percent, but when you look at the cumulative effect of inflation, what that means for really that hidden tax that we've talked about before, what it means for wages, what it means for paychecks, and what it means for the bottom line at the grocery store, the grocery cart is going from being three-quarters of the way full to being one-quarter of the way full. We know how expensive things are at the gas pump. We know how expensive things are when you go to the mall or, or out to a restaurant. And really, it's a, it's a supply chain crisis. It's an energy crisis. And it's an economic crisis that I think has been enabled through the terrible policies and votes that Tim Kaine and Joe Biden have pushed on the American people in a partisan fashion.
0: Looking at the larger U.S. Senate map for 2024, Scott, Democrats face a real uphill challenge in holding on to their, what, one-seat majority?
2: Yeah, we've got a lot of big pickup opportunities, not just in states like Virginia, but also West Virginia and Ohio. Where we want to take out Joe Manchin. We want to take out Sherrod Brown. Over in Montana, we want to get rid of John Tester. We've got a big race once again down in Arizona with Kirsten Sinema leaving the Democratic caucus and becoming an independent. We've also got big races in Nevada. Throughout the country there are real opportunities to go on offense. Another big race in Wisconsin. Can we take out Tammy Baldwin? Obviously this week's Supreme Court race in Wisconsin, That's an elected race, was not good, but I think it was demonstrative of the necessity to go after all elements of the Republican base and the Republican Party in a big, big swing state. You can't just adhere to to one message that only resonates with part of the state.
0: Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, tell us a bit about the club.
2: Yeah, well, Club for Growth, somewhere that I've been the vice president of government affairs for four years, is the leading economic advocacy organization in the country. We have over 500,000 members that are energized by this idea of economic freedom, liberty, and opportunity. And if anybody wants to learn more about the club, check us out at clubforgrowth.org.
0: Thank you, Scott. We'll check in with you next week. Take care. Thanks. Eminent domain is being used to take land from African-American farmers to build an access road to a new Ford electric vehicle assembly plant. Eric Boehm and Joe Lancaster of Reason Magazine explain.
3: The Ford Motor Company, one of America's biggest automakers, has got some big construction projects planned in Tennessee with the help of a whole bunch of taxpayer money. And uh, the Tennessee state government is going to help Ford out here. They're not going to let anything stand in the way, not even the property rights of some black farmers whose land Ford has its eyes on. Hi, folks, I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. My guest today is Joe Lancaster. He's a colleague of mine and an associate editor at Reason, and he's also the author of a piece you can find up there this week at Reason.com. Tennessee will use eminent domain to evict black farmers for Ford EV factory. That's a electric vehicle factory in Tennessee. Uh, Joe, thanks for taking some time with us and talking us through this story today. Sure, thanks for having me. Let's just let's go back to the beginning here. This actually is a story that starts about two years ago when Ford announced these plans. And there's there's a whole bunch of like taxpayer money behind this this huge expansion, not just Ford, but other companies, too, of of electric vehicle production in this country.
4: Yeah, within the past couple of years, there's been a whole bunch of these projects as people become more comfortable with the idea of electric vehicles and also as gas prices continue what they do to fluctuate automakers are really stepping up to fill that need. And so they're spending tens of billions of dollars either building new factories, refurbing their existing factories to be able to do all this. Uh, and one of those projects, like you said, Ford is spending f- uh, more than $5.5 billion on a factory in Tennessee. They say it'll be up and running within a couple of years. It'll employ nearly 6,000 people. But uh, these things rarely ever come without strings attached or without some sort of buy-in from the state government. The state government is kicking in $884 million in incentives, including $500 million in a grant that it's just giving them, and the rest, most, is going to be in things like land, land improvements. Uh, they're spending a couple hundred million dollars building a highway interchange, a new exit off of the interstate, and they're also going to be building a road from the interstate to this 3,600-square-foot facility. And the route that they've chosen for this road runs through a bunch of tracts of land held by predominantly black farmers.
3: This is the same sort of thing we see. I mean, we see it with like stadium projects all the time. You saw it a few years ago with the the new Amazon headquarters. They eventually picked Virginia, I think for this, but like it's just like every state throws tons of money at these big companies to like come locate here, build your, you know, your electric vehicles here. And that's sort of the thing that happened here, right? Like Tennessee was offering these incentives and offering making these promises to Ford as part of the of the deal that that made this factory happen, right? It's this is this is all sort of uh, being driven by the state government.
4: Exactly, yeah, they essentially they always say that you know well, we had to sweeten the pot a little bit, or else they would have gone somewhere else. Ford has a footprint in Michigan already in Detroit, and the thinking was, well, they would have just built this in Detroit if we hadn't given them close to a billion dollars worth of of taxpayer money, and they always say that you know well it'll it'll pay off down the road, all these new jobs, all this it'll spur commerce, but Along the way, they decide, they've decided that the spot where these farmers have lived, in some cases, land that's been in their families for generations and generations, well, it, it would be better if a road was there instead.
3: Yeah, it might pay off down the road for Ford or for like the state tax coffers in Tennessee or something. But it it's probably not going to pay off for the people who could lose their land here when they don't want to sell. Uh, we're talking with Joe Lancaster. He's the author of a piece you can find at Reason.com this week about uh, how Tennessee is threatening to use eminent domain to evict a number of farmers off of their land to make room for this new Ford plant. Joe, tell us about these farmers. I mean, like they're they've been given offers by the state. That's always kind of the first step in this process but do they feel like they're getting a fair shake here?
4: Not at all. The Constitu- the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution says that the state can only take private land if it offers just compensation. And land in this area can go, in some cases, for some, like $200,000 an acre. I mean, it's, it's pay a premium for it. In some cases, these farmers are being offered $3,000 an acre, 8000 And these are cases where the state is going to court in order to enforce this it's not that they're they're offering to send them a check they're saying essentially we are going to take this and this is what we plan to pay for it and farmers are fighting back in court but that's ultimately what it's going to depend on is a judge deciding to side with those farmers it's not it's not a case where they they reach out they try to broker a deal they try to decide you know what what is it that would in, entice you to sell they're saying no we think that the state should give us this farm and this is what we are willing to pay for it
3: yeah it's not a fair transaction we only have about a minute here left but i i do want to sort of underline that point because when the the state comes in and lowballs you with the threat of eminent domain like right behind them that's like I mean, it's it's there, there's not really a negotiation there. Right. Because they're saying either take the offer that we're making you as low as it might be or as unfair as it might be. Or even if you don't want to sell because you feel really attached to this land or this property, it's been your family forever. But if you don't take the deal like well, we've got this hammer and we're just going to hit you over the head. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's always that implicit power of the state behind it that that renders the the transaction just inherently unfair from the very beginning.
3: Uh, really fascinating piece Joe. I uh, appreciate your time here today. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us.
4: Absolutely. Thanks for having
3: me. And again, you can check out that piece online at Reason.com this week. Tennessee will use eminent domain to evict black farmers for Ford EV factory. That's uh, Joe Lancaster is the author there. He's also covered a similar situation in uh, North Carolina where there's a Vietnamese automaker that's going through a similar type thing, getting a bunch of money from the state. And then the state is also turning around and trying to take something like 27 homes, five businesses, and a church using eminent domain. Joe's been all over these stories for us. Really fantastic reporting there. Uh, For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Baim. You can catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. Cancel culture
0: has arrived at the University of Pittsburgh, where two state representatives are attempting to silence debate on a controversial issue. Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College talks about it on this American Radio Journal commentary.
5: I detest cancel culture, especially its ugly spread to speakers on college campuses. Universities ought to be bastions of genuine diversity and the free exchange of ideas. When I was an undergraduate at the University of Pittsburgh in the late 1980s, liberals and conservatives alike were united in supporting one another's right to bring in speakers. Often, the more controversial the speaker, the stronger each camp stood for free speech. Thus, it's quite dismaying to see a fellow University of Pittsburgh alum, somebody who is an elected Pennsylvania state representative, no less, seeking to cancel three speakers invited to the university this semester and, in turn, threaten the university's funding. Unless you think this is unique to Pitt, well, it's obviously not. This is a scourge on campuses nationwide. The Pennsylvania legislator is Democratic State Rep. Latasha Mays. In a statement addressed to Pitt Chancellor Patrick Gallagher during a House Appropriations budget hearing, Mays demanded that the university cancel events featuring speakers critical of transgenderism, namely, swimmer Riley Gaines, Daily Wire commentator Michael Knowles, and Daily Wire podcaster Cabot Phillips. Mays says that, quote, all three speakers have crossed the line of free speech over into hate speech, targeting transgender students and the transgender community, unquote. I find most curious May's accusations against Riley Gaines. Gaines's position as a female swimmer is that transgendered athletes, specifically biological males who identify as females, should not be permitted to compete against biological females. Gaines's position is precisely that of tennis legend and feminist icon Martina Navratilova and the official position of the World Athletics Council. And to Gaines, it isn't merely what happens in the water, but in the locker room. Of her own experience, Gaines says, quote, you have someone with male genitalia pulling his pants down and watching you as a female as you undress. I thought surely there would be someone, whether that be a coach or another swimmer or someone within the NCAA. I thought surely someone would stick up for us. That's when I realized it's my duty as a female athlete who experienced this injustice to really use my voice and my platform to advocate for those female athletes who are emotionally blackmailed and gaslit into silence, unquote. I ask, is that statement from Riley Gaines what Representative Mays considers hate speech? A petition by LGBTQ students at the University of Pittsburgh echoes Mays. They said, quote, It is unacceptable and against the values of this university to allow groups under its administration and on its behalf to host events featuring individuals who wish to advance a platform of hate and transphobia and make our beloved institution an accomplice to the trending attacks that place trans bodies and humanity in the middle of a culture war fabricated entirely for political gain. Unquote. I find the claims of a culture war here being pushed by the political right a little dubious even though it's a common mantra by the political left. Conservatives would counter that the culture war has already been launched by the left and conservatives are merely trying to fight back, least of all with an uncensored voice in the debate. There's no dialogue, folks, if only one side is permitted to speak. For the record, the University of Pittsburgh is standing behind the rights of these speakers, saying, quote, these events are being organized by, and the speakers have been invited by, registered student organizations on campus, and student organizations are permitted to invite speakers, including highly provocative ones, Two campus without university administration deciding what is acceptable and what is not, unquote. Good for them. Pitch Chancellor Gallagher states, quote, the university is a place of dialogue, and in fact, both constitutional and academic free speech are things that I am obligated to support, unquote. Hallelujah. <laughs> Somebody at the administrative level standing up for free speech at a university. One would hope so. What's worse is that some of these events at the University of Pittsburgh, including the one with Michael Knowles, is a debate. Namely, it's a debate between Knowles and Deirdre McCloskey, a well-known transgendered economist. Good grief, can't we even permit people who want to debate to debate one another? Well, no, not the warriors of cancel culture. This is what their diversity looks like. Too many people shouting for dialogue refuse to practice what they preach. It's an ugly thing to see, especially on our campuses. For American Radio Journal, I'm Paul Kengore. Thanks for listening.
0: American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs minded radio stations all across the country, including WMNZ AM in Montezuma State, Georgia, WQFX FM in Biloxi, Mississippi, along with KRNG FM in Wadsworth, Nevada. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program. Please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal, American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.